Hello, this is Eli Lake, and you're listening to The Re-Education. Today's topic is Russia's Terror Army. And our guest later today is New York Times columnist, Brett Stevens. In March, the rest of the world began to see what it means when the Russian army occupies your town. After Ukraine forces drove out the Russians from the Kiev suburb of Buka, journalists and other human rights groups began learning what was left behind. It was a deathscape. Murdered corpses left in the street to rot. A woman chained in her basement wearing only a fur coat, shot in the head after being raped again and again. Some bodies were found with their hands bound behind their back. Others burned alive. The lucky families in Buka only had their homes ransacked and pillaged by Russian contractors and special forces, frustrated by the resistance in Kyiv. War is hell, and in every war, there will be crimes and atrocities. But Western armies follow basic laws of war, and when soldiers commit abuses, they are tried and punished. The scale of the killing and abuse in Buka suggests that what happened there in March was not an aberration. It was a plan. It was part of Russia's war of terror. We have seen other components as well. There have been multiple reports of Russian artillery and aircraft firing on civilians trying to flee the battlefield. A hospital in Mariupol, marked on the roof with Russian words for children, was bombed last month. More recently, a rail station in the Donbass region, where fleeing civilians had gathered to escape the western part of the country, was bombed to smithereens, killing at least 50. These are not mistakes. This is the Russian way of war. So what should the rest of the world do about it? Many leaders are now talking about a war crimes tribunal. The International Criminal Court in The Hague has already announced an investigation. There are currently researchers and investigators on the ground in Bukha. And President Biden and other European leaders have called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. And while Putin and his henchmen are indeed war criminals, we should understand that there's no chance they will be tried in an international tribunal in the near or medium future. This question about a war crimes trial is premature. The war is ongoing, and the civilized world has an interest in Ukraine prevailing This is not just to defend the principle that states should not invade their neighbors, although that is important. It's also because, as we have learned again in Bukha, the Russian army is an instrument of mass terror. We know this from Grozny. We know this from Aleppo. We know this today in Ukraine. For now, the priority is for Western arms and Ukrainian soldiers to break this terrible killing machine. Accountability and justice has to come later. And when that accountability does come, the Ukrainians should decide the best means for justice, not some international court that includes jurists hailing from authoritarian regimes sitting side by side with jurists from democracies. Real justice for Putin can only really come from the Russian people. And while America and its allies cannot do much to bring about those conditions— of a kind of revolution or palace coup in Moscow. We can make clear that our real allies in Russia are its dissidents, its activists, those who have risked their lives to protest this awful war. And this is why it was so dispiriting last month to see the White House walk back 
Joe Biden's remarks about regime change. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. Those words prompted a cleanup from the White House. Biden sounded too much like he was endorsing regime change. I think the words of the president here were incredibly powerful. He spoke personally about the moral outrage that he felt, which is uh, shared by people all across the world. It does not mean he is articulating a change in policy. It does not mean he's laying out uh, a change in U.S. policy. And regime change is the third rail of American foreign policy since the Iraq War in 2003. And yet, Biden's initial gaffe had the advantage of being true. No one today believes that invading Russia, sending a coalition army to Moscow, is either wise or feasible. And yet the recognition that Putin's regime itself is an urgent threat to the security of Europe is a piece of necessary clarity. And so far on this score, we've only gotten mixed messages from Washington and Brussels. Consider the sanctions and diplomatic isolation measures imposed after Russia's invasion in February. Can Russia return to the community of nations if it withdraws most of its forces but still holds eastern Ukraine, and for that matter, the Crimean Peninsula under its sway? Are these the off-ramps that European diplomats continue to talk about? And if that is the case, what will become of the war crimes investigations already underway? Would those be dropped for the right concessions from Putin as well? If that is indeed the policy, then we are only delaying Vladimir Putin's next war to a time of his choosing. A better approach is to plan now for a permanent break with Russia. This means making the West independent from Russian energy and preparing for a deepening alliance between China and Russia, which is already happening. In the meantime, Biden, Macron, Schultz, and the other European leaders should make clear that there will be no coming back for Putin. He has spent the last 20 years showing us, little by little, that he despises the global order so many of us take for granted. Russia cannot be allowed to share in the West's prosperity so long as Putin remains in power. Now, that is not Iraq-style regime change. It's not a neoconservative fantasy. Rather, it is realism. Joe Biden was right the first time in Europe. Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. As the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has just newly come ashore and is bringing the high-quality writing and analysis to U.S. audiences for the first time. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. We have a special offer for listeners of The Reeducation with Eli Lake. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free Spectator hat. Just go to the spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and use offer code LAKE. I just want to say, I've been reading The Spectator for years. They have some of my favorite writers, everyone from Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Christopher Buckley, and Julie Bindel, who's terrific. So I can't say enough about it, and I would recommend listeners to this podcast to give it a whirl. The Spectator is less political party and a more cocktail party. 
And whether you lean left or right, you are guaranteed to be entertained and enlightened from cover to cover. And that's really a big part of the theme of our show here at The Reeducation, is to say that we are interested in debate, we're interested in testing assumptions, and we're interested in hearing a variety of viewpoints, and not just simply reinforcing ideological dogma. And that's just like The Spectator. So again, go to spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and the offer code LAKE. I cannot recommend it enough. And now we are uh, truly honored to have New York Times columnist Brett Stevens joining us on the show. And I just would recommend, I think he is a must read every week in the Times and anything he writes. I consider him America's columnist. Thank you so much, Brett, for joining us. It's an honor to be on your show, Eli. So I wanted to talk to you about two of your recent columns looking at the war in Ukraine. The first one, I think you laid out a really compelling case that it's possible in the West that we would interpret a kind of victory for the Ukrainians where Vladimir Putin pulled off a heist of some of Ukraine's most valuable natural resources, which you end with this great line. It's always wiser to treat your adversary as a canny fox, not a crazy fool. I would talk, talk to us a little bit about why you wrote the column and why you're concerned at this point that we may be kind of deceiving ourselves to thinking that we're in a better position right now vis-a-vis the war than uh, we really are. Let me say first, Eli, that I was a little amused and even taken aback by some of the reactions since I repeatedly say in the column that this is a hypothesis that could be wrong, but is worth considering. But what prompted the column was some concern on my part that there was a lot of premature triumphalism to claims by Secretary Blinken and others that effectively the West had already won the war, right? That the argument is uh, the Russian reversals on the outskirts of Kiev marked a fundamental, fundamental reversal of fortune for the Russian military efforts everywhere which seems to me to mistake a front in the war for the war itself. Secondly, the idea that Putin might not be able to achieve, if not all of his goals, then a great many of them, and that he might, in fact, have flexible goals. You know, in life, you want everything, and if you get 60%, that's considered pretty good. And Putin's calculations for Ukraine may have been very similar. He might have thought, look, best case scenario, I depose the Zelensky government in a lightning strike in Kiev, replace him with some kind of quisling, and then seize large chunks of Ukrainian territory. Well, he so far has failed to depose Zelensky, but he has in fact seized huge amounts of Ukrainian territory and and particularly valuable territory from both a strategic as well as a um, geological standpoint, because Eastern Ukraine and Crimea are the energy-rich or the most energy-rich sides of, of Ukraine. So I wanted readers to just consider that the idea that Putin had, had failed 
is a is a mistaken idea. And I was also alarmed, Eli, that if you take that, if you take the idea that Putin had failed, then the next most logical argument is to say, well, then we want to end the killing immediately by getting to a ceasefire. And that would have only consolidated his gains and given him much of what he wanted. So that column was an effort to push back at what I just thought were, was, was some lazy thinking on, on the part of too many pundits. You introduced a concept in that column, which I thought was, and, and, and you communicated it so clearly, and I, I think it's really important for our audience to sort of understand this, which is that there is an assumption that Putin can't win, which is what uh, our Secretary of State and others have said. But what they really mean is that Putin cannot win clean, which is to say that he could not win without killing a lot of civilians and destroying a lot of civilian infrastructure. And in my view, do you think that there's just a problem, even with the mask slipping, the lunatic speech at the end of February, the invasion itself, and all of the lies that the Russian regime has told, that even still we're sort of clinging to this idea that Russia's a mirror, you know, kind of we mirror image. We think of it as just another state. They're going to have the same kind of pressures. Is that going on here in your view, that we're just not being able to sort of have the appropriate analysis or, or at least you know, understanding of Russia to understand that we are very different and we conduct war very differently. And then we have to expect this kind of thing from the Russians. And he's done it, you know, as you point out in Grozny and, and Aleppo time and again. Yeah, well, one thing that we've learned about Putin is this guy doesn't like losing. Right. And when in the past Russians have experienced even major reversals on the battlefield, they have not simply, you know, licked their wounds. They've come back and come back in ways that were ultimately successful, even if they were successful in the most barbaric, but through using the barbaric methods. And the great example of this is in Grozny, where the Russians were initially repulsed, in fact, got their butts kicked in the, in the mid-1990s in the first Chechen war but came back through a scorched earth strategy. And we're seeing evidence of that now in Eastern Ukraine with strikes on further strikes on civilian infrastructure, train stations, hundreds, you know, scores of dead, if not hundreds in the fact that Putin is now importing, it seems Syrian, Syrian fighters who might not have the same kinds of scruples that uh, Russian conscripts do. I know, I've seen a lot of evidence the Russian conscripts have a lot of scruples based on some of the scenes we're seeing now in recently liberated Bukhani. Well, good point. Yeah. Even fewer scruples, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll find out, you know, pretty quickly. So, so I, I just don't think, I, I think that these, these victory celebrations taking place among Western thought leaders are, are absurd and fail to, fail to take note of the way in which Putin has conducted his wars in the past. Look, I don't want to deny that, you know, what Ukraine has been able to do, not only to stave off the lightning strike at first, to keep fighting, to continually defeat Russian armor through ingenious guerrilla-like tactics and the use of, of, of asymmetric methods has been magnificent. And we should be doing everything we can to, to support that effort. But while we're focused on what's happening in Kiev, and that's in part we're focused because that's where 
many Western reporters are. You have the near complete destruction of Mariupol, the creation of a land bridge surrounding the Sea of Azov, the possibility of strikes into Odessa, the movement of the Russians, not just coming east through the Donbass, but up up from up from Crimea. And and those fronts are moving, however slowly they're they're moving. So so we need to be mindful that Putin could achieve a situation where he can now freeze the conflict, where, where he could freeze the conflict, get away with many of his aims, leave a kind of a truncated Ukraine that is going to require tens of billions of dollars in reconstruction aid as a kind of ward of the West, and ultimately maybe seize his prize five or 10 years down the road when some less compelling figure than Zelensky comes to power and is is willing to to strike a deal with with Putin that creates a kind of another Lukashenko-like regime, Belarusian type of regime in in what's whatever's left of Ukraine itself. And this brings us to to your latest column and I think that the two the two your two last columns kind of be, should be read together because what you're getting at is that the problem is Putin that there isn't going to be any kind of security for Europe until at least Putin is removed. And, and, it, and that may still be a problem because, you know, we don't know who would and uh, who would replace Putin. And what I thought was so compelling in your 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 latest column that Biden's still right, Putin has to go, is that you you make the very, very clear but obvious kind of argument that it's possible to have a goal of the end of Putin's regime without committing to an invasion of Russia or a sort of CIA Cold War style plot. And there are creative things that we can do, which are not usually associated with, you know, regime changes. We understood it in 2003 that can help destabilize the regime, including helping the Ukrainians truly have a a resounding defeat and to break the Russian army. Why do you think right now, at least in kind of our American discourse and maybe the Western discourse in general, it's such a, a third rail to talk about, to state the obvious that, that, that Putin is, is sort of irredeemable at this point. Well, I mean, I think the problem, the, the reason people are so afraid uh, of that and reacted so vociferously is the notion that if we merely mouth the idea that we don't want Putin to remain in power, it might send him into some kind of personal fit that could end in, you know, nuclear uh, Armageddon. And because Russia has such a personalized form of government, calling for Putin to go is, is you know, is, is triggering to use, to use common phrase. The, we've become, I think, as a country easy prey to cliches and slogans and sloppy thinking. In Afghanistan, we became prey to this phrase, uh, forever war, without taking into account the fact that our presence in Afghanistan the last 10 or so years has been, was fundamentally different from what it was in its, in its first 10 years, with a much smaller presence very few casualties. And yet the term forever war came to dominate our thinking and ended up leading to what I consider, you know, a, a catastrophic outcome, complete defeat for, for the United States. 
in a way that I think haunts us and I think is also connected to Putin's calculations in Ukraine. Now we're sort of haunted by this term regime change, as if regime change always takes the shape of the third infantry division marching towards the enemy's capital. Now, when people say, when I say Putin should go, does that mean regime change in that sense? Of course not. But it means that we should be striving in various ways to not only see him defeated in Ukraine, but to undermine the foundations of his power. And the foundations of his power ultimately rest on a combination of military might or the perception of military might. They rest on a certain level of economic power and they rest on propaganda. Well, and I would say the fourth is they rest on an almost you know, boundless reserve of cruelty that he would be willing to use against his political opponents, even if they're not in uh, Russia. Well, that's a very good point. And, and, and so, so the other aspect is terror. Right, terror. Uh, right. A, a kind of um, an implicit terror, which is, you know, no one is immune. We don't care if you live in, in Salisbury or Washington, D.C. We can, we can find you. We can kill you. Well, we can start doing in the West a number of things to undermine those, those bases. A clear defeat for Russia in Ukraine would have, would it, would it end the Putin regime? I don't know, but it would end the perception of Russian and Russian military might and Putin's invulnerability, right? Will sanctions be our silver bullet? Well, typically, sanctions are not a silver bullet. We've seen that in North Korea and Iran, which have been able to withstand sanctions. But again, effective sanctions, especially if they're targeted at the upper echelons of the regime, can, can make, things, uh, make things happen. A, a third factor I, I think is important is we need to respond to Russian desinformatia with Western information. We need to make sure that Russians have a clear picture of what's happening in Ukraine, uh, a clear picture of the lifestyle that Putin and his senior or his inner circle enjoy, wherever we can disclose this kind of information that fundamentally shows the, the self-dealing oligarchical nature of the Putin state, so much the better. And again, none of that may guarantee Putin's downfall, but it makes it more likely rather than less. And I think that should just be the Western approach. Well, I think one important element is that at the very least, we should have a sort of strategic understanding of what our goals are here. And it's been muddled, in my view, because we don't really know what, what are the conditions for removing some of these sanctions, for example. Is it the withdrawal of some Russian forces? Is it the withdrawal of all Russian forces, including the territories that they annexed and gained in 2014? Or would some of the sanctions and diplomatic isolation, should it be understood that they are in effect until and unless Putin is no longer in power? So that's an important, it's an important element to just understand what the conditions are. And, and perhaps if you state it like that, it would be an incentive for elements of the Russian state, although again, we don't know, and it's, it's perilous to try to predict, 
to start taking matters into their own hands. But I want to ask you about another argument that we're starting to hear, which is that as bad as Putin is, what comes after him could be worse. And we cannot afford this any sort of any slight bit of instability in Moscow, given the fact that Russia has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. That's something that, you know, we've seen recently in a kind of joint letter from this new magazine called Compact, that sort of, what do you say to that? Well, Russia has nukes, so we cannot even comprehend, you know, a change in regime because it will destabilize the situation and potentially lead us to nuclear war. Well, this is a, a rhetorical tactic of people who want us to do next to nothing against Putin. Correct. Which I is, agree. well, it could be worse. Yes, it could be worse. Uh, that's an excellent argument for never making any affirmative effort to make things better, right? And in the case of Russia, the hyper-personalized style of the regime is something that Russia hasn't seen, never mind since the Soviet Union, since the days of Stalin. That seems to me to be profoundly objectively more dangerous to the West than the kind of consensus-driven, junta-like state that, that the Soviet Union had after Stalin, where even Khrushchev or Malenkov or the ultimately Brezhnev and his successors never could make take all the steps on their own without some sense that they needed to consult with a, a, a broader group of, of players. We might well have ended up in World War III if Stalin had been succeeded by someone like Lavrenti Beria, right? You know, another Stalin-like figure. We didn't have World War III because, in part because there was greater rationality in, in the Soviet system when, it, when there were more players at the very top of the Soviet system. So I don't find the argument compelling in the least. Uh, yes, I mean, you, you have to accept a range of possibilities. One is Putin goes and there's total chaos and, and the Chechens get a hold of, you know, sizable amounts of Russia's nuclear infrastructure. I don't think that would happen for many, many reasons. Russia is not that weak of a state, right? But but the important point is, is that that argument, I think, is essentially a bad faith argument, because really what it is, is, is saying, you know, don't, don't lift the smallest finger on behalf of Ukraine, because if anything should happen to Putin, the man who's currently the chief source of global instability in the world, things, things will only get worse. So it's, it's a kind of a, a, a tacit defense of Putin's regime. And not surprising that it's coming from the source that you mentioned. I, I would also add to that, that, and it's going to sound kind of strange for a neoconservative to praise 1970s arms control, but the result of almost of, of 50 years of, you know, U.S. to first Soviet and then Russian military hotlines and transparency on the nuclear arsenals is not a, a full guarantee that there wouldn't be some horrific example of a nuclear exchange, but it does give us more kind of visibility and sense to sort of try to mitigate that risk in the result of a transition than in your sort of, you know, Stalin scenario, because those, those channels do exist. And I do think that they can at least mitigate some of that risk. 
Well, of course. And look, you know, the problem yeah. with hyper-personalized rule is there's always the possibility that one guy will go crazy, right? Right. Harder to imagine if there are 20 guys, right? So that's, that's I mean, that seems to me fairly fairly self-evident. But again, I think the argument about, you know, it could get worse after Putin is a 100% bad faith argument that is essentially uh, a roundabout way of of being pro-Putin. At this point, what do you think the Biden administration in particular is going for? Do you think that there is pressure on Zelensky to negotiate a kind of ceasefire and a short-term peace? Or are you seeing you know, signs, because it's unclear in my view, because they are talking about sending heavier weapons now, you know, to to support Zelensky in this kind of second phase of the war that's coming up that's dealing with the eastern part of the country. Well, I don't know. And I think it's evolving by the day. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's evolved in a favorable direction, primarily because the Ukrainians rallied around Kiev and have fought magnificently. And because Zelensky has become a one-man moral force that is is not just a strategic factor in Ukraine, but also a political factor in Western capitals. I mean, Zelensky is probably the most admired leader in in the world today. And so a Biden administration or you know the European governments also have to be mindful that if they were to betray him by failing to provide at least meaningful assistance, or by, you know, demanding, essentially insisting on a, on a peace at any price position, that they would pay a political price themselves. I mean, I think more Americans probably, if I, I'm guessing here, but I'm, but, but you'll probably agree that if Zelensky could run for president in the United States, he would easily defeat any. <laughs> any conceivable competitor right now. And that probably is true in, in Britain and Germany and, and and other places. So I think it's changing, but I do think that the administration is at least beginning to grasp the idea that victory, at least victory in the sense of pushing Russians largely out of the areas they've captured since February 24th, is, is conceivable. And that there would be great advantages in in pursuing that strategy. So that's, you know, you get the sense that they're playing it more or less by ear, but that's at least right. somewhere in, in the administration's mind. Now, I'm a little bit loath to bring this up because it's, it is such a, a kind of a, a topic, you know, that brings us back into our, our kind of domestic dysfunction. But, you know, what is your read at this point it seems that most of the elected Republicans, with a handful of exceptions, have really been very strong and kind of rallied against Russia. And like what and what does that tell us about the Republican Party still, you know, very much kind of under the sway of Donald Trump? Well, I think that the, it tells us that what used to be the old fashioned Republicanism is still. Uh, vital. Yeah. Yeah. Vital and and important. And there's been tremendous focus, particularly among, you know, the left side of the media on the very prominent conservatives who have moved in the other direction. Less focus, I might add, on very prominent liberals who, you know, (laughs) felt the same or leftists who felt exactly the same way as the Tucker Carlson's of the world. 
but I, I think it it actually shows that there's there's more sort of common sense and old fashioned assertive internationalist uh, foreign policy in the Republican Party than than I'd feared after four years of Trump. Of course, Trump's now saying going around saying if if he he, he were president, Putin would never have invaded, and he would have handled it totally differently. Hard to say if that's true, but I I hear a lot of Republicans making that case. And implicit in that case is the idea that, you know, what Putin has done is an outrage and it requires a considerable show of American strength. So, you know, I'm I'm generally heartened by it. On the other hand, the demagoguery of the Tucker Carlson's of the world, aided and abetted by some of the voices on the new far right, it's something that, that concerns me. Do you, do you think that there's a weird demagogic cycle, though, in that you also find a, a kind of lazy slogan thinking on elements of, of, of the old Trump resistance that still wants to believe that, you know, the Republican Party is under the sway of, of Russia in the middle of this war and to me, at least, it reminds me of how useless the John Birch Society and the McCarthyites were in the Cold War. We had a serious international struggle against communism, and they wanted to use, you know, that very serious uh, threat, that Cold War, as a cudgel against very local domestic political opponents. And in that respect, they ended up discrediting anti-communism to a certain extent. And it required responsible voices at the time on the right to sort of expunge them from polite society. Is, is there, do, you th- do you think that to a certain extent that the oxygen for someone like Tucker Carlson, it comes in part from, you know, the, the, the sort of legitimate point that, that I'm trying to make about the overstepping of the argument and the sort of the hyperbole, you know, during the Trump years with regards to Russia? You mean the hyperbole with regards to the theory that Trump was in Russia's pocket? And also the style of the discourse, which is this kind of, you know, there, there was there was classified information that people had they couldn't entirely share and that there were allegations and it, and then sort of this endless cycle of, of outrage that never ended up coming, you know, we know didn't really ever end up being proven by the people who investigated, but more importantly, it was just all that mattered was this allegation and that this sort of became part of the, 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 the language of our politics to accuse, you know, people who, who, who supported Trump of being disloyal Americans. Yeah, I think there's a certain amount. Which, by the way, Trump would do in other issues as well. I mean, it's, it's not it's, it's a problem in, you know, in, in, in a large sense. But on this issue, it really did affect, you know, more on the Democrats or the progressives, I guess. The the suggestion that what uh, I'm trying to understand the the point you're making. What I'm saying is that, that that Tucker Carlson I think is pushing on an open door with his audience because they were subjected to five years of constant alarm and alarmism about Russia and their influence on the Republican Party. Yeah, no, that's true, and they were also subjected to years of what amounted to. Rachel Maddow disinformation. Sure, exactly. And so the result of this avalanche of false allegations and 
fact checks, which turned out to be the opposite of fact checks and all the rest of it, has created a kind of boy who cried wolf type of uh, uh, scenario. And it, and by the way, that alone, in my view, is a legitimate grievance. What's not a legitimate perspective is what Tucker is saying now, which is that Russia has a right to, you know, secure their own border or that why should I, you know, why should I be on Ukraine's side? They never accused me of being a racist and all of this other garbage about, you know, it's a Nazi state and all this other stuff that, you know, some of his guests have sort of said, or that Zelensky's a puppet of, of, you know, America and the European Union. That stuff is garbage. So I want to make it very clear. Well, I'm not there saying- few, there, there are a few points. Yeah. Yeah. What is the supporters of Ukraine, right, should be very careful. Like, it would not surprise me in a war like this. In fact, I think there are credible allegations that there have been Ukrainian war crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Guess what? There were American war crimes in World War II against the Japanese in in on on the European front too. These are these are facts of war. And 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 you know, Zelensky has also, as a war leader, as war leaders almost inevitably have, has tried to work hard to root out the possibility of Russian subversion in in undermining the war. And Tucker it can can easily paint that as evidence to his assertion that there's no moral difference between the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians and the Russians. And so I think it's re- particularly important to sort of be clear about about this. I mean, take the issue of these bio alleged bioweapon labs. You yeah. Know, which, you know, the moment you investigate it, you realize Ukraine was saddled with this infrastructure of of bio labs that it had to deal with, right? And any lab in America, any lab in the world is essentially potentially a bio lab, right? Because you can do things in most laboratories. So they've made uh, this issue, Tucker has made this issue, uh, what's really a a very mundane thing, seem, seem sinister. And some of the reporting I've seen has simply failed to address what should be a commonsensical and easily disposed of point, which is, yes, Ukraine has has labs, right? Because they are holdovers from the Soviet period. And we have been trying to fund them to to deal to, to make sure that they don't become dangerous to the world. So there's a constant right. effort to try to deal with complex information in simplistic ways that get people like Tucker Carlson aid and comfort when sure. there's some some evidence of of dissembling or the suppression of of information now i've lost the thread of my argument well no what i was trying but but it gets back to why it's so important for those of us who are not in the populist right and who do care about getting facts right and telling nuanced stories to acknowledge when there were serious errors and to at least acknowledge that if someone in 2022 says, I don't know if I trust, you know, the FBI or the CIA when they tell us something, that they that they're not saying that because they're a crank or, you know, they just they don't have, a, you know, they're not educated enough to understand this is all conspiracy theories that there, there are very fair criticisms, especially in the last five years 
of some of these institutions, of some of the same people who are sort of talking about it. Now, the key is that, you know, I would sort of say, don't let your adversaries do your thinking for you. Just because, you know, Joe Biden and, and Nancy Pelosi are correctly calling out Putin and the Russian military's war crimes doesn't mean that that's false, just because they have said things that were false before. And I'm looking at this not because I'm trying to excuse Tucker Carlson or people on the populist right, Brett. My point is that if you want to move beyond to some next phase of American politics, you're going to have to at least acknowledge the parts of their grievances that are true in order to defang their message, in order to sort of maybe to suck a little bit of that venom out. Yeah, that's true. But you're, my view is that you are, this is one corner of a very large problem in American life. Fair enough. And, you know, the, the crazy conspiracy thinking didn't begin with Russiagate. No. And it's been, it's been, by the way, it's been there since the founding of the United States. It's been there, there since were... the founding. It is aided and abetted by a combination of the widespread dissemination of uh, dubious information in social media. It's aided and abetted by shoddy reporting in mainstream media. It's aided and abetted by, by an educational establishment in America from kindergarten all the way up till graduate school, which doesn't foster habits of, of critical thinking. So it's a really big problem. I think the biggest issue, Eli, is to me the decline of authority in terms of the mainstream media. Sure. Um, and the ways in which that authority has been squandered are astounding. And the question of whether it can be recovered is not clear to me. You know, there's a great scene in Dr. Strangelove where the Russian ambassador is, has been called into the war room of, of the American war room you know, if you know the movie, because some crazy yes. American general has ordered his bombers to bomb Russia, and it turns out the Russians have this doomsday weapon that's going to destroy almost all of life on Earth. And the Russian ambassador gets into an argument about with an American general on the question of whether the Americans weren't whether the Americans weren't secretly developing one of these doomsday devices themselves. And the argument more or less ends when the Russian ambassador says, I read it in the New York Times. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that to discredit my, my publication, but I am saying that the idea that that line could end the argument today right. well, is a non-starter. If you were to say to a right-wing American general, I read it in the New York Times, right? Today, the answer would be, well, therefore, I must be right. Right. Because there has been just, a, and it's not just the New York Times, it's the entire edifice of, of mainstream media has suffered this intense loss of authority. And well, that's my point, is that in order to get the authority back, you have to start acknowledging where the errors were. That's the only, that's, and I would say the same, you know, for some of the other institutions that we talked about earlier, is that 
that's the first step. Now, are you going to get everybody? No, I think there's always going to be a percentage of the population. They're just going to believe crazy conspiracy theories. We had that throughout the Cold War. As you know, there were all kinds of theories There were conventions of people who had theories about Kennedy's assassination. Um, that's and that was fine. The problem is that you have a lot of people with peers. Something we, it's hard to measure. You have a lot of people that are willing to support political candidates that tune into sort of media personalities. And it's a disturbing kind of plurality of Americans that just have sort of broken entirely with these institutions. If you want to gain at least some of them back to strengthen the center, we have to have a level of, it's not even about contrition. It's just a sort of saying, you can trust us because we acknowledge new facts as they come to light. And that's what we haven't had. And and we also... When we do acknowledge them, it's in a kind of like a backhanded way, a backhanded way, which is profoundly problematic and also problematic when too many reporters put their biases on their sleeves in their social media feeds. And those things have to have to change. I mean, I agree. I think the point you and I are centering around is American political discourse was always at risk of conspiracy theories and 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 sort of losing sight of reality because that's just written into the nature of democratic societies with um, right. free expression they've gained a particular foothold now not only because crazy people have crazy ideas but because the same center right has too often well, have uh, they have their own conspiracy theories that's, been, that's it yeah. comes their own conspiracy theory yeah. and and misinformation, which they then which has been peddled as the absolute truth. And I don't see how we reclaim this again. I really think to me this is always a pedagogical issue. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to limb the lines between skeptical, intelligent, grounded inquiry, right, and off-the-wall conspiracy theorizing, right? You, it, it really requires a certain kind of astuteness and an ability to kind of think through evidence. And for the last 60 or so years, American schools have largely deprived students of the skills they need to do that hard work. And until that changes, we're always going to be kind of at risk here. Yeah. Well, listen, that's a great way to end it. Brett, I can't thank you enough. Again, I, I, I urge my listeners to read him regularly. It's consistently, in my view, the best column in America. Thank you so much for your time, Brett. This has been a great conversation. Uh, it's my pleasure, Eli. Be well. You too. Thanks. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. 